0: Chapter Thirty-Three: As a Tenant of Waldfell Hall. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ana Sofia Simon Portugal. The Tenant of Waldfell Hall by Anne Bronte, Chapter thirty three seventh Seventh. Yes, I will hope. Tonight I heard Grimsby and Attersley grumbling together about the inhospitality of their host. They did not know I was near, for I happened to be standing behind the curtain in the bow window, watching the moon rising over the clump of tall dark elm trees below the lawn, and wondering why Arthur was so sentimental as to stand without, leaning against the outer pillar of the portico, apparently watching it too. ''So, I suppose we've seen the last of our merry carousels in this house,'' said Mr. Harkersley. ''I thought this good fellowship wouldn't last long, but,'' added he, laughing, ''I didn't expect it would meet its ends this way. I rather thought our pretty hostess would be setting up her porcupine quills and threatening to turn us out of the house if we didn't mind our manners.'' ''You didn't foresee this, then,'' answered Grimsby. With a good old chuckle. But he'll change again when he's sick of her. If we come here a year or two ends, we shall have all our own way. You'll see. I don't know. replied the other. She's not still a woman you soon tire of. But be that as it may, it's devilish provoking now that we can be jolly. Because she chooses to be on his good behavior. It's all these cursed women muttered Grimsby. They are the very bane of the world. They bring trouble and discomfort wherever they come, with their false, fair faces and their deceitful tongues. At this conjecture I issued from my retreat, and smiling on Mr. Grimsby as I passed, left the room and went out in search of Arthur. Having seen him bend his course towards shrubbery, I followed him thither, and found him just entering the shadowy walk. I was so light of heart, so overflowing with affection, that I sprung upon him and clasped him in my arms. This startling conduct had a singular effect upon him. First he murmured, Bless you, darling, and returned my close embrace with a fervour like old times, and then he started, and, in a tone of absolute terror, exclaimed, Ellen, what the devil is this? And I saw. By the faint light gleaming through the overshadowing tree, that he was positively pale with the shock, how strange that the instinctive impulse of affection should come first, and then the shock of the surprise it shows at least that the affection is genuine; he is not sick of me yet. I startled you arthur said i laughing in my glee, how nervous you are. What the do you do it for cried he, quite testily, extricating himself from my arms and wiping his forehead with his handkerchief. Go back, Ellen, go back directly. You'll get your death of cold. I won't, till I've told you what I am came for. They are blaming you, Arthur, for your temperance and sobriety, and I'm come to thank you for it. They say it's all these cursed women, and that We are the pain of the world, but don't let him laugh or grumble you out of your good resolutions or your affection for me." He laughed. I squeezed him in my arms again, and cried in cheerful earnest. Do, do persevere, and I love you better than ever I did before. ''Well, well, I will,'' said he, hastily kissing me. ''There now, go, you mad creature how could you come out in your light evening dress this chill autumn night it is a glorious night said i it is a night that will give you our death in another minute run away do do you see my death among those trees arthur said i for he was gazing intently at shrubs as if he saw it coming and i was reluctant to leave him in my newfound happiness and revival of hope and love but he grew angry at my delay, so I kissed him and ran back to the house. I was in such a good humor that night. Millicent told me I was the life of the party, and whispered she had never seen me so brilliant. Certainly, I talked enough for twenty, and smiled upon them all. Grimsby, Hattersley, Hargriff, Lady Lowborough, all shared my sisterly kindness. Grimsby stared and wondered. Hattersley laughed and jested in spite of the little wine he had been suffered to imbibe, but still behaved as well as he knew how. Hargrave and Annabella, from different motives and in different ways, emulated me, and doubtless both surpassed me, the former in his discursive versatility and eloquence, the latter in boldness and animation at least. Millicent, delighted to see her husband, her brother, and her over esteemed friend acquitting themselves so well, was lively and gay too, in her quiet way. Even Lord Lovarok got general contagion. His dark greenish eyes were lighted up beneath their moody brows. His sombre countenance was beautified by smiles. All traces of gloom and proud or cold reserve had vanished for the time. And he astonished us all, not only by his general cheerfulness and animation, but by the positive flashes of true force and brilliance he emitted from time to time, Arthur did not talk much, but he laughed and listened to the rest, and was in perfect good humour, though not excited by wine, so that altogether we made a very merry, innocent, and entertaining party. ninth yesterday, when Rachel came to dress me for dinner, I thought that she had been crying. I wanted to know the cause of it, but she seemed reluctant to tell. Was she unwell? No. Had she heard bad news from her friends? No. Had any observance vexed her? Oh, no, ma'am, she answered. It's not for myself. What then, Rachel? Have you been reading novels? Bless you, no, said she, with a sorrowful shake of the head. And then she sighed and continued. But to tell the truth, ma'am, I don't like Master's ways of going on. What do you mean, Rachel? He's going on very properly at present. Well, ma'am, if you think so, it's right. And she went on dressing my hair in a hurried way, quite unlike her usually calm, collected manner. Murmuring half to herself, she was sure it was beautiful hair she could like to see a match it. When she was done, she fondly stroked it and gently patted my head. Is that affectionate evolution intended for my hair or myself, nurse? said I, laughingly turning round upon her, but a tear was even now in her eye. What do you mean, Rachel? I exclaimed. Well, ma'am, I don't know, but if if what? Well, if I was you, I wouldn't have that lady Lowborough in the house another minute. Not another minute, I wouldn't. I was thunderstruck, but before I could recover from the shock sufficiently to demand an explanation, Millicent entered my room, as she frequently does when she is dressed before me, and she stayed with me till it was time to go down. She must have found me a very unsociable companion this time, for Rachel's last words rang in my ears. But still I hoped, I trusted they had no foundation but in some idle rumour of disturbance from what they had seen in Lady Lowborough's manor last month, or perhaps from something that had passed between their master and her during her former visit. At dinner I narrowly observed both her and Arthur, and saw nothing extraordinary in the conduct of either, nothing calculated to excite suspicion. Except in distrustful minds, which mine was not, and therefore I would not suspect. Almost immediately after dinner, Annabelle went out with her husband to share his moonlight ramble, for it was a splendid evening like the last. Mister Hargrave entered the drawing room a little before the others and challenged me to a game of chess. He did it without any of that sad but proud humility he usually assumes in addressing me unless he is excited with wine. I looked at his face to see if that was the case now. His eyes met mine keenly, but steadily. There was something about him I did not understand, but he seemed sober enough. Not choosing to engage with him, I referred him to Millicent. She plays badly, said he, I won't match my skills with yours. Come now, you can pretend you are reluctant to lay down your work i know you never take it up except to pass an idle hour when there is nothing better you can do but chess players are so unsociable," i objected they are no company for any but themselves there is no one here but millicent and she oh i shall be delighted to watch you cried our mutual friend two such players it will be quite a treat i wonder which will conquer i consented now mrs huntingdon said hargrave as he arranged the men on the board speaking distantly and with a peculiar emphasis as if he had a double meaning to all his words you are a good player but i'm a better we shall have a long game and you'll give me some trouble but i can be as patient as you and in the end i shall certainly win. He fixed his eyes upon me with a glance I did not like, keen, crafty, bold, and almost impudent, already half triumphant in his anticipated success. I hope not, Mr Highgrave, returned I, with vehemence that must have startled Millicent at least. But he only smiled and murmured, Time will show. We set to work. Is sufficiently interested in the game, but calm and fearless in the consciousness of superior skill. I, intensely eager to disappoint his expectations, for I consider this the type of a more serious contest, as I imagine he did, and I felt an almost superstitious dread of being beaten. At all events, I could ill endure that present success should add one title to his conscious power, his insolent self-confidence, I ought to say or encouraged for a moment his dream of future conquest. His play was cautious and deep, but I struggled hard against him. For some time, the combat was doubtful. At length, to my joy, the victory seemed inclining to my side. I had taken several of his best pieces, and manifestly baffled his project. He put his hand to his brow and paused, in evident perplexity, I rejoiced in my advantage, but they are not glory in it yet. At length he lifted his head and, quietly making his move, looked at me and said, calmly, ''Now you think you'll win, don't you?'' ''I hope so,'' replied I, taking his pawns that he had pushed into the way of my bishop with so careless an air that I thought it was an oversight but was not generous enough under the circumstances to direct his attention to it, and too, aidless, at the moment, to foresee the after-consequences of my move. It is those bishops that trouble me, said he, but bold knight can overleap the reverend gentleman, taking my last bishop with his knight, and now, those sacred persons once removed, I shall carry all before me. ''Oh, Walter, how you talk!'' cried Millicent. ''She has far more pieces than you still.'' ''I intend to give you some trouble yet,'' said I. ''And perhaps, sir, you'll find yourself checkmated before you are aware. Look to your queen.'' The combat deepened. The game was a long one, and I did give him some trouble. But he was a better player than I. What keen games players you are," said Mr. Hattersley, who had now entered and been watching us for some time. Why, Mrs. Huntingdon, your hand trembles as if you had staked your all up on it. And Walter, you dog, you look as deep and cool as if you were certain of success, and as keen and cruel as if you drained her heart's blood. But if I were you, I wouldn't beat her, for very fear. She'll hate you if you do so you will, by heaven. I see it in your eye. Hold your tongue, will you? said I. His talk distracted me, for I was driven to extremities. A few more moves, and I was inextricably entangled in the snare of my antagonist. Check! cried he. I sought in agony some means of escape. Mate! he added, quietly, but with evident light. He had suspended the utterance of that last fatal syllable the better to enjoy my dismay i was foolishly disconcerted by the event hattusly laughed millicent was troubled to see me so disturbed hargrave placed his hand on mine that rested on the table and squeezing it with a firm but gentle pressure murmured beaten beaten and gazed into my face with a look where exultation was splendid with an expression of ardour and tenderness yet more insulting. ''No, never, Mr. Hargrave,'' exclaimed I, quickly withdrawing my hand. ''Do you deny?'' replied he, smilingly pointing to the board. ''No, no,'' I answered, recollecting how strange my conduct must appear. ''You have beaten me in that game.'' ''Will you try another, then?'' ''No.'' You acknowledge my superiority. Yes, as a chess player. I rose to resume my work. Where is Annabella? Said Hargrave gravely, after glancing around the room. Gone out with Lord Harlborough, answered I, for he looked at me for reply. Had not yet returned, he said, seriously. I suppose not. Where is Huntingdon? looking round again. "'Gone up to the Grimsby, as you know,' said utterly, suppressing a laugh, which broke forth at the concluded sentence. Why did he laugh? Why did Hargrave connect them thus together? Was it true, then? And was this the dreadful secret he had wished to reveal to me? I must know and that quickly.' I instantly rose and left the room to go in search of Rachel and demand an explanation of her words. But Mr. Hargrave followed me into the anteroom, and before I could open its outer door, gently laid his hand upon the lock. ''May I tell you something, Mrs. Huntingdon?'' said he, in a subdued tone with serious downcast eyes. ''If it be anything worth hearing?'' replied i struggling to be composed for i trembled in every limb he quietly pushed a chair towards me i merely laid my hand upon it and bid him go on do not be alarmed said he what i wish to say is nothing in itself and i will leave you to draw your own interferences from it you say that Annabel is not yet returned yes yes go on said i impatiently for i feared my forced calmness would leave me before the end of his disclosure whatever it might be and you hear continued he that huntingdon is gone out at grimsby well i heard the letter say to your husband or the man who calls himself so go on sir he bowed submissively and continued i heard him say i shall manage it you'll see they are gone down by the water i shall meet them there and tell him i want a bit of talk with him about some things that we needn't trouble the lady with and she'll say she can be walking back to the house and then i shall apologize you know and all that and keep her a wink to take the way of the shrubbery i can be talking there about those matters i mentioned and anything else i can think of as long as i can and then bring him round the other way, stopping to look at the trees, the fields, and anything else I can find to discourse of. Mr. Hargrave paused and looked at me. Without a word of comment or further questioning, I rose and darted from the room and out of the house. The Determined of suspense, was not to be endured. I would not suspect my husband falsely on this man's accusation, and I would not trust him unworthily. I must know the truth at once i flew to the shrubbery. scarcely had i reached it when a sound of voices arrested my breathless speed we have lingered too long he will be back said lady lorborough's voice certainly not dearest was his reply but you can run across the lawn and get in as quietly as you can i'll follow you in a while my knees trembled under me my brain swung round. I was ready to faint. She must not see me thus. I shrunk among the bushes, and leaned against the trunk of a tree to let her pass. Ah, Huntingdon, said she reproachfully, pausing where I had stood with him the night before. It was here you kissed that woman. She looked back into the leafy shade. Advancing then, he answered with a careless laugh. Well, dearest, I couldn't help it. You know I must keep straight with her as long as I can. Haven't I seen you kiss your adult of a husband scores of times? And do I ever complain? But tell me, don't you love her still? A little? Said she, pressing her hand on his arm, looking earnestly in his face. For I could see them, plainly, the moon shining full upon them from between the branches of the tree that sheltered me not one bit by all that sacred he replied kissing her glowing cheek good heavens i must be gone cried she suddenly breaking from him and away she flew there he stood before me but i had not strength to confront him now my tongue cleaved to the roof of my mouth i was well nigh sinking to the earth and I almost wondered he did not hear the beating of my heart above the low sightings of the wind and the fistful rustle of the falling leaves. My senses seemed to fail me, but still I saw his shadowy form pass before me, and through the rushing sounds in my ears I distinctly heard him say as he stood looking up the lawn. There goes the fool. Run, Annabella, run. There. In with you. Ah, he didn't see that's right grimsby keep him back and even his low laugh reached me as he walked away god help me now i murmured sinking on my knees among the damp weeds and brushwood that surrounded me and looking up at moonlight sky through the scant foliage above it seemed all dim and quivering now to my darkened sight My burning, bursting heart strove to pour forth its agony to God, but could not frame its anguish into prayer, until a gust of wind swept over me, which, while it scattered lead leaves, like blighted hopes around, cooled my forehead, and seemed a little to revive my sinking frame. Then, while I lifted up my soul in speechless, earnest supplication, some heavenly influence seemed to strengthen me within. I breathed more freely, my vision clear. I saw distinctly the, the pure moon shining on, and the light clouds skimming the clear, dark sky, and then I saw the eternal stars twinkling down upon me. I knew their God was mine, and he was strong to save and swift to hear. I'll never leave thee nor forsake thee, seemed to the whisper from above their myriad orbs no no i felt he would not leave me comfortless in spite of earth and hell i should have strength for all my trials and win a glorious rest at last refreshed invigorated if not composed i rose and returned to the house much of my new-born strength and courage forsook me i confess as i entered it and shut out fresh wind and the glorious sky everything i saw and heard seemed to sicken in my heart the hall the lamp the staircase the doors of the different apartments the social sound of chalk and laughter from the drawing-room how could i bear my future life in this house among those people oh how could i endure to live john just then entered the hall and seeing me told me he had been sent in search of me, adding that he had taken in the tea, and Master wished to know if I were coming. Ask Mrs. Hartsley to be so kind as to make the tea, John, said I. Say I am not well tonight, and wish to be excused. I retired to the large, empty dining-room, where all was silence and darkness, but for the soft sighting of the wind without, and faint gleam of moonlight that pierced the blinds and curtains. And there I walked rapidly up and down, thinking of my bitter thoughts alone. How different was this from the evening of yesterday? That, it seems, was the last expiring flash of my life's happiness. Poor blinded fool that I was to be so happy. I could not see the reason of Arthur's strange reception of me in the shrubbery. The burst of kindness was for his paramour sort of horror for his wife. Now too, I could better understand the conversation between Ottersley and Grimsby. It was doubtless of his love for her that spoke not for me. I heard the drawing room door open. A light quick step came out of the anteroom, room, crossed the hall, and ascended the stairs. It was Millicent, poor Millicent, gone to see how I was. No one else cared for me. But she still was kind. I had no tears before, but now they came, fast and free. Thus she did me good, without approaching me. Disappointed in her search, I heard her come down, more slowly than she had ascended. Would she come in there and find me out? No. She turned in the opposite direction and re-entered the drawing-room. I was glad, for I knew not how to meet her or what to say. I wanted no confidence in my distress. I deserved none, and I wanted none. I had taken the burden upon myself. Let me bear it alone. As usual, hour of retirement approached. I dried my eyes and tried to clear my voice and calm my mind. I must see Arthur tonight and speak to him, but I will do it calmly. There should be no scene, nothing to complain or to boast of to his companions, nothing to laugh at with his lady love. When the company were retiring to their chamber, I gently opened the door, and, just as he passed, beckoned him in. ''What's to do you do, Ellen?" said he. ''Why couldn't you come to make tea for us? And what the deuce are you here for, in the dark?'' ''What hails you, young women? You look like a ghost.'' He continued, serving me by the light of his candle. ''No matter,'' I answered, to you. You have no longer any regard for me, it appears, and I have no longer any for you. Hello? What the devil is this? He muttered. I would leave you tomorrow, continued I, and never again come under this roof, but for my child. I paused a moment to steady my voice. What in the devil's name is this, Ellen? Cried he. What can you be driving at? You know perfectly well. Let us waste no time in useless explanation, but tell me, will you? Eventually he swore he knew nothing about it, and insisted upon hearing what poisonous old woman had been blackening his name, and what infamous lies I had been fool enough to believe. Spare yourself the trouble of forswearing yourself, and wrecking your brains to stifle truth with falsehood. I coldly replied, i have trusted the testimony of no third person i was in Shrewbury this evening and i saw and heard for myself this was enough he uttered a suppressed exclamation of consternation and dismay and muttering i shall catch it now set down his candle on the nearest chair and rearing his back against the wall stood confronting me with folded arms well what then said he with calm insolence of mingled shamelessness and desperation only this returned i will you let me take our child and what remains of my fortune and go go where anywhere where he will be safe from your contemning influence and i shall be delivered from your presence and you from mine no will you let me have the child then without the money no, nor yourself without the child. Do you think I am going to be made talk of the country for your fastidious caprices? Then I must say here, to be hated and despised, but henceforth we are husband and wife only in the name. Very good. I am your child's mother, and your housekeeper, nothing more. So you need not trouble yourself any longer to feign the love you cannot feel. I will exact no more heartless cares from you nor offer nor endure them either i will not be mocked with the empty host of conjugal endearments when you have given substance to another very good if you please we shall see we will tire first my lady if i tire it will be of living in the world with you not of living without your mockery of love when you tire of your sinful ways and show yourself truly repentant i will forgive you and perhaps try to love you again, though that will be hard indeed. Humph! And meanwhile you'll go and talk me over to Mrs. Hargrave and write long letters to Aunt Maxwell to complain of the wicked wretch you have married. I shall complain to no one. If thirty, I've struggled hard to hide your vices from every eye and invest you with virtues you never possessed, but now you must look to yourself. I left him muttering bad language to himself, and went upstairs. ''You are poorly, ma'am,'' said Rachel, surveying me with deep anxiety.'' ''It is too true, Rachel,'' said I, answering her sad looks rather than her words. ''I knew it, or I wouldn't have mentioned such a thing.'' ''But don't you trouble yourself about it,'' said I, kissing her pale, time-wasted cheek. I can bear it better than you imagine. Yes, you were always forbearing, but if I was you, I wouldn't bear it. I'd give way to it, and cry right hard, and I'd talk too, I just would, and let him know what I was too. I have talked, said I, I've said enough. Then I'd cry, persisted she, I wouldn't look so white and so calm and cross my heart with keeping it in i have cried said i smiling in spite of my misery and i am calm now really so don't discompose me again nurse let it say no more about it and don't mention it to the servants there you may go now good night and don't disturb your rest for me i shall sleep well if i can notwithstanding this resolution i found my bed so intolerable that before two o'clock I rose, and lighting my candle by the rushlight that was still burning, I got my desk and sat down in my dressing gown to account the events of the past evening. It was better to be so occupied than to be lying in the bed, torturing my brain with recollections of the far past and anticipations of the dreadful future. I have found relief in describing the very circumstances that have destroyed my peace as well as the little trivial details attended upon their discovery. No sleep I could have got this night would have done so much towards composing my mind and preparing me to meet the trials of the day. I fancy so, at least. And yet, when I cease writing, I find my head aches terribly, and when I look into the glass I am startled at my haggard, worn appearance. Rachel has been to dress me and says I have had a sad night of it, she can see. Millicent is just in to ask me how I was. I told her I was better, but to excuse my appearance admitted I had had a restless night. I wish this day were over. I shudder at thoughts of going down to breakfast. How shall I encounter them all? Yet let me remember it is not I that am guilty. I have no cause to fear, and if they scorn me as victim of their guilt, I can pity their folly and despise their scorn. End of chapter 33